Well, if you would grab your Bibles there, and I want to encourage you to be bringing them through the summer and to uh, potentially follow along with us. There's a little outline or just a little kind of summary, some notes on Ephesians in your program this morning, just to kind of whet your appetite and to begin uh, to, to just travel through this book with us. And we're going to begin our study today, and as you see, we're not going to get very far. Because, and we're not going to quite take it that slow, but there's some things I want to foundationally set in place that as I really last year, probably about November, started thinking about this study that I really want to foundationally set in place today that really has to do with the overarching theme that we are to be the church that's Monday through Saturday, not simply, well, on Sunday. Uh, This letter was written by the Apostle Paul, probably uh, 62, 64 AD, during a time of incarceration to a people that he was probably closest to in the New Testament because he'd spent a couple of years with them. He lived with them and he started the church in Ephesus. And you can get some background on this in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20. It was probably the longest time that he spent with any one group of people. And and part of the reason is, is we not only see in the letter, especially in chapter 20 of Acts, that there was this wonderful kindred spirit that was developed between Paul and the church at Ephesus, uh, but it was, Ephesus was strategically located at kind of a crossroads in a sea area uh, between Europe and Asia. Later, Paul's protege and son in the faith, Timothy, would take over this church, and it really became known as a strong, vibrant Uh, do good works and good teaching. And it was just a solid church, probably one of the best in the New Testament. Because as Paul writes, he's not correcting anything. He doesn't have any problems with them. He's just encouraging them and and sharing life with them and kind of giving them some doctrine and some practical application. Uh, Ephesians, by some scholars, called the, the Alps of the New Testament. And we're going to get to take this breathtaking view of God's work on our behalf and then get to see how the church begins to function. The community of people that make up the church, not simply locally like right here, uh, but universally. Now, one of the things that you don't readily pick up on in this book, but it's really important, you'll begin to see kind of the, the undercurrent of it as it really focuses on community. You're going to see a lot of, we're going to talk a lot about community as we go through this book because one of the things that Paul talks a lot about is unity. Not uniformity, but unity. And still to have much diversity within the body of Christ. But see, the church, and it's, and it's kind of what I opened with earlier, the church really is about being a community that grows this way so that we can go for the community out there. God never called anyone here. Hear me. Nobody is ever called to be a solo sapien. You know what I'm saying? See, we think we could do life on our own, but God says, no, I've meant you to come together. Uh, Romans 14, 7 says this, for none of us lives unto himself and none of us dies unto ourselves. And I was uh, on a hobby horse in staff meeting this last week when we were talking about people who think they don't need the church. Oh, just give me Jesus, but not the church. 
Well, I'm sorry. There's a lot of messed up churches out there. I understand that. But there's plenty of good churches. And you've got to, Jesus always calls us to the church. Why? Because we become the expression of his life and his body. And this is what I said in staff, and I'll say it here. People that don't engage in church and they still think they're following Jesus really become weird. I'm not kidding you. There might be a few out there that are, but most of them really become weird. They get weird thoughts, they get weird beliefs, they get weird doctrines, and they're just weird because they think they've got a corner on something that nobody else does. Down with the church. Why would we say that? Jesus said, I'm going to build the church, and the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. We we really don't have an option to just drop kick it. But But some really mature people think they do. Now, the book of Ephesians, loved ones, if, if probably if there's one section of Scripture besides the Gospels and maybe Romans 8, this is, the, this is what I would want you to personally possess because there's more revelation in this book. There's, it's packed with subjects that are addressed to you and to me on, well, what does God think of us? What has God done for us? And then how are we supposed to live? And Paul, throughout this book, you're going to see, uses a number of pictures to present and to show us what the church is is like. He says it's a body. The church is like a body. He says it's like a temple. He says it's a mystery. He says it's like a new man. He says it's like a bride. And he says it's also like a soldier. And so we're going to look at all those different pictures and metaphors and begin to understand the church in greater fullness. It's a positive and encouraging letter. Again, nothing is that Paul is confronting with this church because it was a ch- solid church. Interestingly enough, this is the only church in the New Testament that received two letters. They received this letter, the book of Ephesus, and then if you want to go and kind of see what happened about 30 years later after this was written, go to the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, and you'll see how they kind of moved away from the central core of Jesus Christ, and they become focused. They had become so focused on good doctrine and orthodoxy that their orthopraxy, their ability to do things with the right heart and to simply love Jesus, had begun to grow cold. But we're going to look at the church really in its zenith. And I want us just to kind of take a broad picture, a foundational picture of Ephesians. And again, I want to set the stage for the overarching theme. Because this book, really, it's almost the Magna Carta of how the church is to move and to operate and how it's to understand itself. Someone asked me a few months ago, Where's your church located? And because of the context of the conversation, I said, well, it's at 444 Fig. And I, and I found myself stopping. And I said, no. Now, that's where we have a building that we might meet in a couple of times a week. But I'll tell you where the church, where Creekside Church is. It's in the cubicles around the East Bay. It's in the ditches where people are digging, where homes, where they're building at work. It's in the schools where students go, where college students go, where some of you adults go to school. It's in the grocery stores. It's funny. It's kind of fun going to grocery stores now. It seems like almost every time I go there, I could set up a Bible study because I see, I see so many Creeksiders there, you know, and all of a sudden we're gathering around and we could have either a prayer meeting, a Bible study, or do something. Have you noticed that's true? You're kind of running in, bumping into each other more and more. 
But see, that's where the church is. 444 Fig Tree Lane, Martinez, California is simply our address. Our church, you, we've been saying this, we've been beating this drum for a while, haven't we? You are the church. It is being relocated. When you leave here today, this week, you are going to be the church Monday through Saturday. This just kind of becomes a day where we get to kind of come and, and celebrate together. Our address is where we gather once a week. But if the church simply becomes a place to meet, an institution of activities, and it's not about people, and it becomes focused on the building and programs, well, we'll simply be observed by people. And we will become a very static, we won't be, we'll become a static organization as opposed to a dynamic organism. And we never want to move there. But as we'll see at the church of Ephesus, that's what began to happen by the time they got to Revelation 30 years later. See, the purpose, friends, of all we do is to get Jesus to people because he lives in us. Our goal isn't to get, Jesus, or to get people to Jesus. That's never what the New Testament talked about. It's all about going. Now, yeah, we want to get him into church. But that can't be the, 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 the mentality. Our mentality has to be get Jesus into our community. You know why? Because if we understand, and I'm going to give you a little quick biblical flow of history, God has been relocated throughout history. And if you can kind of see it in scenes, the first scene is in the Old Testament as the God who is out there, almost austere, far from people. What happened? God creates man and woman. Genesis 1 and 2. It says God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now what's powerful is that word breathe can be translated into a kiss. We see that God comes and he creates this living soul. It's not just based on biology, but it's based on this intimate relationship that he wants to have. In Genesis 3, we see that God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. He, he, he face-to-faces with them because that was his original intent. But then in chapter 3, they also, they sinned and they were removed from the garden because God couldn't be face-to-face with sinful humanity or sin. So what happens? They're expelled and then all of a sudden, God kind of becomes removed And now he's the God who is out there. And pretty soon we see God as the one who, he comes upon the prophets. He comes upon the sacrifices. He comes upon Mount Sinai. Why? Because he wants man to know he has not forgotten about them. He is still there for them. He is calling out to us, to them. But when this intimacy was broken, the soul died and there was separation from God. So God begins to act. He steps into humanity and history to reestablish life support and intimacy. Ah, but it wasn't very intimate, was it? As you read the Old Testament, you go, that's not a very intimate God. He's pretty tough. And he was. And God begins to develop these laws through this chosen people called the Hebrews to reveal his power and his holiness and ultimately his goodness and his grace. And we see in Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 
that literally it tells us he is the, that, that the laws were meant to be the schoolmaster pointing us to God. But, but throughout the whole Old Testament, don't you see, don't you sense, don't you feel a relational gap that people couldn't get to God? It was still God that was kind of out there. Well, then you come to scene two, the New Testament, and it moves from God who's out there to God who is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter one, verses 21 and 22 and 23, it talks about Jesus comes. You're gonna call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, in the Old Testament, everybody was afraid of God because of the way that he set up the system that would ultimately point to the coming Messiah. People today are still afraid of God. So he does this remarkable thing. He ushers in this thing, and we're going to talk about this, I believe, in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He ushers in the dispensation of grace. We're going to talk about the different dispensations of God. And with Jesus, the dispensation that we're in right now is called the dispensation of grace. And how does he do it? Well, he brings this little child, Jesus. Why? Because no one is intimidated by a child. So he grows up and he lives for 33 years. And we see him as the kind, loving, compassionate, all truth, all just, all love God. We don't see him as angry. We don't see him as condemning. But he is engaging and life-giving wanting us to see the very heart of Father God. Everybody thinks that he's this carpenter. But no, he reveals himself over time as God in the flesh. And what does he say? He says, anybody that has seen me has seen the Father. There's no angry God out there anymore. I've come to reveal reveal him. Luke 19, he said, I come to seek and to save the lost. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he said, I come to serve, not to be served. We get to see his heart when he catches a woman in adultery. What does he do? He confronts her, he challenges her, he loves her, but he doesn't condemn her. He gives her life and he simply says, go and sin no more. So we see this radical relocation of God from out there to with us. And Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you'll often see when people come to him or when he confronts people, what does he say? He says things like this, what can I do for you? What do you need? And it isn't because he's Aladdin's lamp God, but it's because he brings people into focus to say what is it that they really need for their heart, for their life. Comes to Bartimaeus. He's blind. What do you need? I need my sight, okay? And he deals with all of these different things and gives people new life, new hope, because why? He is the God that is with them. But now let's, let's move to scene three. In the New Testament, we understand now that there is not only God with us, but there is the God that is in us. John 14, 17 You'll read here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, that Jesus fills everything. He fills everything. He fills our lives when we invite him in. 
Jesus leaves, he says in the Gospel of John, so that the Spirit can come and live within us, John 14, 17. From Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is birthed, there's this new community formed for what? To take Jesus to people. Not to convert, but to reveal Jesus Christ as we become like him, people begin to see us and the manifestation and the life of Jesus being worked in and through us. And so guess what we get to do now as the church, Monday through Saturday? There's nothing wrong with the four spiritual laws, sharing them, but ultimately where we start is, what can I do for you? How can you and I be Jesus to the people around us? Not to convert, but to simply reveal Jesus to them as he's been revealed to us. We're called to be this prophetic community. If you read Acts chapter 2, remember when the Holy Spirit come and they, had, they were in the upper room? Well, that was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and it was quoted again in Acts chapter 2. Now, Joel was a minor prophet. How would you like to be a minor prophet? Hello, I'm a minor pastor, and uh, I don't know what defines that. I think just size. But Joel is a minor prophet. He steps onto the historical landscape for a moment in time. We know nothing about him except that he preaches a sermon, and it's recorded in three chapters, and he basically says, if you don't get right with God and take care of stuff, there's going to be this swarm of locusts and bugs. They're going to eat and attack everything, and it's not going to be pretty. Oh, and then, and then in there, in chapter 2, he makes this statement, this prophetic statement statement, that there's going to come a time when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is going to come upon all people and people will begin to have dreams and visions. And that's going to usher in this new prophetic community called the, 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 the church. You and me, when God's sport, Spirit gets poured out. Well, that's what happened, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the day the church is born. We are that group of prophetic people, the prophetic community, the now loved ones. We get to hear from God. We get to receive from God. We get his spirit in us that leads us and guides us. And now we can speak into our culture and our community like no group has in the past before the day of Pentecost. That's what you and I get to do. We have God's voice to our community. And so what do we do now? Well, we get to live incarnationally. Ultimately, this is what Jesus leads us to do. This is the ministry that Jesus has brought to us. The key isn't evangelization first. It is simply emmanuelization, where we bring Jesus into the community. That's what the church of Monday through Saturday does. It operates in the experience of people out there in the culture on their turf. It's tough being a pastor sometimes, you know. Um, <clears throat> I had to go golfing Wednesday night. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, but, but this, is, this is the golfing that I did. Uh, the crab feed team and our harvest offering, uh, the, the Alhambra golf team needed financial resource and help to continue to make it through their season. So I saw the thing in the paper, and I thought, you know something, let's, let's, you know, we do a lot for the school, so let's help this out, and, and music, let's help this athletic program. 
So I checked with the crab team, and they said, yeah, let's do it. And so we gave this gift to them. Well, the coach calls me and says, okay, because you guys gave this gift, I'd like to know if you'd want to come play with the golf team. Um, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> so, well, unfortunately, that was like two months ago. And so on Tuesday, you know, I just got back, and Tuesday I get an email and says, listen, if you do it, you can only do it on Wednesday. Well, I tell you, I had about 115 other things that I would have rather done than go golfing. And I know, you go, oh, sure. <laughs> but it's true. But it's, yeah. <laughs> no, it's really true. I, I was catching up, and I had to do it. But, and, and I almost said, you know something? I, I just can't. I, don't want, I mean, I just got too much to do. And, and the Lord just said, you know, you're going to be preaching on this on Sunday. <laughs> Get into the community. And that's what we're called to do. I didn't go there to convert. I simply went there to continue to build relationship with another group at Alhambra High School that so many of our ministries here have already started to build and to develop relationship with. And see, loved ones, we can never forget. That's what it's all about. Colossians chapter 1 says that there's a mystery. And we'll talk about the mystery in a couple of weeks. But that the mystery is Christ living in us. Jesus is in us, our hope of glory. And if we live and can move with that kind of confidence, it will make all the difference in the world to the people around us. Now, the third thing I want to look at today is if you'll turn to, you're probably thinking, what, Ephesians, what are we doing? Yeah. Uh, turn to Ephesians now, and I'm going to read the first two verses. It's all introduction. Because we want to be a church that's prophetic. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, I would encourage you to understand that everything about your life is about God's will. So Paul says, I'm not here because of my will. I'm not here because of somebody else's will. I'm here because of the will of God. And some of you need to write this in your Bible. I've got it in mind right here above this verse. Paul understood this principle that God has placed me in this time and place because he is preparing me for what he's prepared for me. And some of you have to live and begin to grasp that, that you were not here for 70, 80, 90 years to just kind of fill space and breathe air. God has great purpose for you. And you say, oh boy, I can never be a pastor, preacher, missionary, evangelist, blah, blah, blah. Yes, you can, right where you are. That's the whole message of Ephesians, ultimately, that God has a place for you, and he's prepared you to begin to move into the works, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that he's already prepared for you. See, God, simply all he's done is some of you may work construction and think, oh, I'm just a construction worker. Or some of you may think, oh, I'm just an accountant. Or I'm just a mother. Listen, or I'm just, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mother. Can I tell you something? God has simply designed you and, and kind of almost camouflaged you in those um, attire and in that kind of a job so that you are. You're a pastor wherever you go. It's simply someone who cares for people. God's just kind of hidden you so that when you go to church, you get to become a pastor to those people or an evangelist or a missionary. 
but you don't look like one. Aren't you glad? You know, that, that you can be digging in a ditch and you don't have to be wearing a tie and a coat. You can just be, and you don't have to talk like, well, uh, you know, get all those weird, you know. And probably some of the, you know, everyone makes fun of a lot of the things that I do, all the tics that I have when I'm speaking. Uh, you don't have to have those. You can just be really natural and bring Jesus to the situation. And he says, to the saints and the believers in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. The saints. You know what a saint is? It's really, even though some church groups want to make people saints, you're, you're either a, you've heard me say it, but you're either a saint or an ain't. Okay? How are you a saint? If you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And if you are a saint, then this book is for you. Now, if you're an ain't and you're here today, we're, I mean, we are so thrilled that you're here because I know that there's some people that, you know, come to Creekside and they kick the tires here for a long time trying to figure out if we're real, if Jesus is real, and if all this stuff is real, and we welcome you. But ultimately, when we stand before God, no one's going to go, wow, St. Terry, whoo, what a guy. There's no, listen, Mother Teresa is not a saint any more than any of you are that come to Jesus Christ. We're all saints under the banner of Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse 2, grace. Grace to you and peace. You can never experience true peace in your life, loved ones, until you experience the grace of God. I'm going to close talking about grace for a few minutes because my whole world right now my in-world is getting reconfigured because of what God's doing in me in terms of grace. But you'll never experience peace from God if you haven't experienced the grace of God. And then he says, that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever thought why the Holy Spirit isn't mentioned there? As a people that believe into the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why isn't it the Holy Spirit? You know what I think it is? If you read John chapter 16, verse 13, it says that the Spirit never speaks of himself, but he always points to God, to Jesus Christ. And part of the revelation, remember, it is the Holy Spirit that inspires the writers in the Word of God. Well, he's pointing and doing what Jesus said he would do. As Paul writes this, the inspiration focuses on Jesus and the Father, and he never speaks of himself. Grace. Amazing grace. Do you really believe it? I believe it. But can I tell you something? There's a big difference between getting it in your head, getting it in your heart, and then growing in it. Grace. Caris. It means unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, unearned blessing. It is God giving us what we don't deserve. Not because of what we do, not because of who we are, but in spite of what we do and in spite of who we are. This is so hard for some of us. This can be as hard as, as, as watching a, a, a MIG trying to lock onto another jet fighter. You see in that when you see in the movies or shows and they're, they're trying to lock onto it? See, sometimes we think we have a good understanding of grace. And as I tell you, my whole grace orientation is being reconfigured. It is being peeled back. 
Because I've always thought I was a grace person. I always thought I experienced it. I always thought I gave it. Oh, man, no. I haven't locked on to it like God's called me to. I get to grow in it. Because this grace understanding is rebuilding my, my, my life in areas at this time. And this is so important. It's interesting as we have come to Ephesians talking about it for a number of months because Paul uses this word, and I didn't realize this until I started reading through this again the last couple of weeks. Paul uses the word grace 12 times in this book. I went and I've, I've highlighted every one of them. You know what? It's in the beginning, verse 2, and it's in the end, chapter 6, verse 24, and it's in between. Our lives are to be wrapped in grace, amazing grace. You'll see the same thing in 2 Peter. Peter and Paul, these guys that know Jesus profoundly and deeply, keen, incredible intellects, they come back and they don't say in their books, grow in devotion, grow in zeal, grow in holiness. (laughs) But they say, be in. Grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. Listen, loved ones, if you grow to understand and experience God's grace, it will change you for the rest of your life. See, we think of grace that, okay, by grace, I'm saved. Okay, I gotta have grace at the outset, but maybe I don't need any more grace because I'm getting better, I'm doing better. No, we need grace every day. Paul even said it this way, that his grace is sufficient for you every day. See, every person deserves to be falling into an ever tightening vortex into a dark pit called hell because of the wages of sin and which causes death. But it's by the Lord's grace that we can experience eternal life, salvation. Oh, that he can make you and you and you and me more whole every day in every way. Now this whole grace motif throughout Ephesians, it's so important because Paul follows a familiar pattern in, Paul, in his writings. Here in Ephesians, chapters one through three focus on belief and doctrine. And he tells us who we are and what God's done for us. And then in chapters four through six, he says, well, this is what we do and how we're to live in the light of that truth. It is this order that is so important to free people from works-oriented legalism. Because that will ruin your relationship with Christ probably as much as anything. It's so easy to get into legalistic living and and ministry is often seen in the lives of Christ followers and churches who emphasize doing over being and becoming. They They emphasize behavior before belief. Now we don't do that to the best of our ability, but you know, it used to be you couldn't come to church unless, you know, they check your breath at the door and make sure you weren't smoking and drinking. Listen to make sure you're not swearing. And so the church used to say, okay, cover all that stuff up, and then you can come. Get your behavior right. No, Paul says, you've got it backwards. You've got to know what Jesus Christ has done for you before you try and clean up your act because ultimately none of us can clean up our act. 
It isn't behavior before belief. It isn't duty before doctrine. It's when we think through, bask in, meditate on the doctrines and the beliefs of what Christ has done for us that we find ourselves saying, I want to serve and live for Jesus. And when you get people that really begin to believe that and act like that, you, you listen, they go out into a world and they have influence. See, duty then, it's not a demand, but it's a delight. And as we start really the, ne- the next part of Ephesians next week, you're going to get to see how it's all spelled out, the great grace and goodness that Jesus has given to us, provided for us for living. Where our identity comes from. Our identity isn't what we do. Our identity is in whose we are. And it makes all the difference in the world, loved ones. Because see, over the years, I've noted how quickly people scan and, and kind of get through Ephesians 1 through 3 because it's almost kind of, kind of heavenly language, you know? It's kind of out there. But if you really begin to unpack it and break it down, you can only see what God has done for us. So we kind of get through one through three so that we can get to chapters four, five, and six. You know, the practical stuff about holy living, living in purity, how to be, how to be united, how to be a great husband and wife, how to be a great parent, blah, 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 blah. You know, spiritual warfare. We get to all that. It's all important. But after a while, you wonder why people get beat down and depressed with their relationship with God. It's because they're trying to do, do, do before they know who, who, who. They are in Jesus Christ. So the first three chapters talks about who we are, our identity in Jesus. And then the last three says, well, because of these first three chapters, and when you know how much you are loved because of the grace of Jesus Christ, now this is how you get to live. Not because of a duty, not because of a demand, but because of a delightful relationship with this God who loves you more than you can either fathom or understand or comprehend. Listen, loved ones, our behavior never determines our position, but our position in Jesus will ultimately lead us on how to live and how to behave and how to live a life, as Paul says in Ephesians 4 1, that is honoring to our God. I was in Denver with Trina and we were in a place that had been recommended to us to eat and we were walking in downtown Denver and walking and it was probably really funny if you would have watched us because she's pointing here and I'm pointing here and I'm saying we got to go this way and she's saying we got to go that way and you know we walked this way and then all of a sudden we got to do a beeline because I mean we're just lost. So finally, we got really smart, and I said, well, let's pull out our phones. So we yelped the place to get walking directions, and once we got that, it was, it was, it was still a little bit of a struggle for Trina, and um, <clears throat> I, I finally had to lead the way and get us out of downtown, but uh, I was thinking about that. It's so easy for us in life, isn't it, to get, you know, kind of, well, on this, get off on this journey following Jesus. You know, we try, and, we try and square away everything in our lives before we really understand who Jesus is in our lives. And we end up going this wrong religious direction. See, the divine design of Ephesians, loved ones, is to know him and to know who you are in him. The one thing that the Bible emphasizes more than us loving God and people is that God loves us. He loves us first. First. 
He is the initiator, the motivation and the purpose for you learning and serving and coming here and worshiping and giving and reaching out and praying is ultimately because you're growing closer to Jesus Christ. You're not trying to get brownie points in heaven. See, you're not only saved by grace, but you grow by it too. Never forget, loved ones, you need grace every day. A common trap for so many of us, including me, is that we, whether we're new or in this long-term relationship, is we're always trying to clean up our lives without God's help. This is a false equation. Listen to it. The less you sin, the less you need God's grace. No. You still need God's grace every day. Listen. You can't sin less and love more without the strength of God's grace. Write this scripture down. I think I put it in your notes. Titus 2, 11 and 12. It says that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness, but to live controlled and godly lives. We need grace every day, loved ones. But too often, too often we just want to work. We want to do. I want to close with this. In your notes there, it's... um, it's a great grace verse as I, for different people. As I write um, birthday cards, I, I put this verse in there. I've been probably doing it for six months. And it says this, Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I've written that, I don't know how many times in cards. I believe it, but I don't live it. It's the last three weeks. I have been radically confronted with grace in my own life. And do I really believe that Jesus Christ gives me the grace that I need? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. Do I really believe it? And do I live it? Because see, as I, as, I, as I understand and sense and feel his grace, his delight in me, not because I'm a pastor, not because I'm an all right husband or father or whatever, but because I'm his creation and he loves me. Uh, that's when you really begin to experience grace. And see, loved ones, if you don't begin to experience that, listen, two things will begin to happen. You'll never accept your God-given uniqueness. You'll always strive to be something different or to be like somebody else or to do life another way because you really wonder if God is really happy with you, if he really delights in you, if he really will dance over you. Or the second thing will happen, you won't separate your person from your performance. It's all about performance and accomplishment. You'll begin to view yourself and others as commodities instead of people. You relate to them on the basis of winning and losing. And soon you'll find yourself on a treadmill of simply working for Christ instead of loving and growing for him. And you'll begin to wonder why everything gets so dry. It's because you can't see the lover of your soul, this one who says grace to you. And he's going to talk about this throughout. You'll not be able to see and feel this God that loves you and delights over you. You'll just be doing. 
working, involved, active. But you won't feel that love and that motivation of grace. Winston Churchill told the story of a man who was always chattering. And one day he said to Sir Winston, he chirped, he said, I haven't told you about my grandchildren yet. And for that, Churchill answered, and I am deeply grateful. (laughs) Now, if you're a grandparent or a parent, you're going to understand what I'm going to show you. This is not a gratuitous effort to show off my grandson. So forgive me up front, but I want to make a point. I was, this is about a month and a half ago, and I didn't realize it at the time, but this is, this is where this Zephaniah thing has come to me. I was just watching my grandson, and he wasn't even uh, paying attention, but I was snapping pictures. I want you to notice the delight in his face. He's with his papa. One, I'm just sitting there watching TV with him, and the other one, I got some ice cream, and we partied. But it's just short, but I want you to see this, and then you'll see why in a second. Why do I show you that? Because when I was taking those pictures a month and a half or two months ago, I had no idea I'd use it for this, but it, it struck a chord with me in the last two weeks that just like I took his pictures and he didn't know it or he wasn't paying attention because he was so involved in what he was doing, you know what? I was delighted in him. It wasn't anything that he was doing, not doing, He was simply being Isaac. And I saw the delight in his face, and I just, I go, chick, chick. Hear me. How many of you can say that you see God doing that for you? Whereas you're going through life, you just sense this this lover of your soul that's paying attention to you in the midst of all your busyness and smiling upon you, not sitting there pointing his finger at you. Oh, he'll confront you through the presence of his spirit. But he says he delights in you. He's the grace giver, the lover of your soul. And some of you are tired and worn down 
because you're just involved in religion and you don't sense this lover of your soul that's delighting over you. And I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you because this is the word from the Lord for me. I've got to see him delighting over this man. Not because of what I do, not because of who I am, but because I'm his. And that's the freedom I want you to have because when it does, it'll change your life. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?